Okay, well, as I shared earlier, we have a nice light topic this morning. Okay, the law and sexuality. And as I explained a few minutes ago, we are are going through this series on the, the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant really the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And there are, there are a lot of, 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 of difficult things in, in those chapters, those books. There, there are some challenging things, um, but we, we need to address all of them. And so now to this morning, we're getting to the point where we're going to address the law as it relates to sexuality. Now, if, if you're visiting us this morning, or maybe you're not, not even a Christian or, or really trying to understand belief, and you might think, is this all Christians talk about? Well, the answer is no. It's actually pretty, pretty infrequently that we talk about this, um, but it is an important topic. And so when the Bible leads us to talk about it, we, we feel the need to do so. And so we're going to do that this morning. And we'll cover a lot. Um, there, there's a lot here. And I agonized most of yesterday trying to decide what I could or could not say had to cut a lot. So this is a big topic. We're just going to scratch the surface in a lot of ways. And, um, and as we go through, there will probably be some challenging things here, but I encourage you to wait, wait until the end um, for, for your understanding of what God may be saying um, related to this topic. Okay, so, the law and sexuality, let's, let's get into this. Uh, first of all, where are we going this morning? What am I going to try to do this morning? First of all, we're going well, to ask these questions. Number one, what does the Mosaic Law say about sexuality? I'm just going to summarize it. We're going to categorize it, look at the many passages. We won't read them all. I'm just going to summarize the categories of, of laws that we have related to sexuality. Number two, how do those laws apply to us, if at all? And that's a big question. We've been discussing that a lot. Okay, these are in the Bible, but they were in the Old Covenant that that may not directly apply to us, at least in the same way that it did to the people that it was written to. And so, what does that mean for us? Number three, if God did indeed restrict sexual expression at all, why did he do so? You want to ask that why question. Not just what, what did he say, but why might he have said it? And then number four, how should each of us personally respond to God's laws in this area, especially if we have already broken them. So that's what we're going to tackle this morning. And we'll start with that, that first question, what does the Mosaic Law say about sexuality? And let me just give you the summary. We'll make six points or different categories here. Number one, sexual activity must not cross marital lines. So it says that in several places, uh, more, most famously in the, uh, the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. And so pretty simply, do not cross marital lines. Number two, sexual activity prior to marriage must be followed by marriage. There are a couple places in the law where it says if a man has sex with a woman, he is obligated to then marry her. It says that. Number three, incest, incest and bestiality are prohibited. There's actually quite a bit on incest and protecting close family relationships. Number four, homosexuality and cross-dressing are prohibited. Obviously, that's the controversial one in today's age. Number five, prostitution is prohibited. And then finally, penalties are given for breaking nearly all of the the above, and sometimes very severe penalties, even death. Okay, so that's our overview of what the the Old Testament says about sexuality and the laws pertaining to it. But let me just sum that up even. 
And, and basically, what it seems to say in the, the Old Testament law is that sexual relations are limited to marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah, so if we could boil it all down, in a nutshell, that's what the law seems to say. But then we've got to move to our next questions. And the next question is, how do these, these laws apply to us, if at all? And do these laws even say what we think they say, how they, how, what they appear to say on the surface? Okay, so we've got to dig in here and, and, and ask, are these laws really saying what we think they say? And even if they are, do they apply to us? Because remember, we've gone to great lengths to explain how we are no longer obligated to directly obey the Old Testament laws. So how do these laws apply to us? And um, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to try to describe uh, an argument, and I'm going to try to do it as, as fairly as I can, although as succinctly as I can, an argument that these laws do not apply to us and actually, there's a, there's a biblical case for great sexual freedom. Okay, I want to describe that argument first, and then I'm going to respond to it. And how I'm going to do this, I'm, I, uh, I'm going to just make three points to encapsulate this argument. And I'm going to give a few quotes from a, uh, uh, a book that I read a couple years ago. Um, called The Gospel of Inclusion by Brandon Robertson, and, and he's a, a homosexual pastor, and he makes this case for, for a very inclusive interpretation of the Bible and, and for great sexual freedom. And so I'm going to try to fairly describe and summarize uh, some of the points that he makes and the case that he makes. And so point number one, Case for sexual freedom. Number one, the Bible doesn't actually limit sexual activity in the ways we have been led to believe. So the argument here is that we are a lot like the first century Pharisees. We've added a lot to what God says, said. He didn't really say a lot of what we think he said. We've just built this behemoth of rules and regulations. So that's the argument. And let me read this quote. He says, first, most of what the church has condemned throughout history has little to no biblical basis. For instance, if you ask almost any traditional Christian if premarital sex is sinful, they will immediately say yes. But ask them to show you where that comes from in Scripture, and they will be forced to admit that there is not a single verse that says sex is only intended for a marriage relationship. You might pause and say, really? Is that, is that true? And you might go through the little database of passages in your mind looking for a verse that plainly says premarital sex is prohibited and you might not be able to recall one right away. So perhaps he has a point here. Maybe, have we built out this law beyond what God said? Okay, there's point number one. Secondly, the argument would be this. Argument would be this. We are not obligated to obey the Old Testament laws, and the Bible demonstrates a progressively maturing ethic that is moving toward a more inclusive end. Okay, when we read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, we see a progression here where it's becoming more and more inclusive. Limits are being taken away. 
constraints are being taken away. And there is a greater and greater sexual freedom. Let me read a more extended quote from him. Not only does Jesus consistently expand the teaching of Scripture to align with a higher ethical standard, but he consistently reinterprets ancient commands in a more inclusive manner. Jesus clearly has no problem amending Scripture to be more ethical and inclusive, and therefore it cannot be argued that Jesus was working from a paradigm even remotely similar to that of modern biblical inerrancy. For Jesus, the Bible was a living text, always evolving and always being brought nearer to completion. And he goes on and says, I have become convinced that the ethical trajectory of the Bible should lead Christians towards a position of greater inclusion and acceptance of those who have previously been considered unclean, and that the New Testament imperative of Jesus is to listen to and rely on the ongoing revelation of the Holy Spirit to guide our faith and practice. So that's the argument. We, we know that we're not obligated to follow all the Old Testament commands. And, and anyways, if we look at just the, the arc, the trajectory of the Bible, we see Jesus moving it away from limitations and constraints. And we should as well. Number three, we often misdefine biblical terms resulting in the condemnation of people and actions that were not intended to be condemned. This is a very, very common one. This is the, actually the Inigo Montoya thing. You keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. This is often the tax taken to, um, to challenge traditional Christian doctrines. And the, the idea is that we base those doctrines on interpretations of words that don't really mean what we suppose them to mean. The, the main word here would, would be the, the, the Greek word arsenokoitai. Okay? And that is the word translated in, in our English Bibles to say men who practice homosexuality. And the argument is that word doesn't actually mean what we might think it means. So let me read one of the passages. This, this word is used in the New Testament. You know, we've, we've uh, said that the, 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 we're not obligated to be under the Old Testament, but then if we even move into the Old Testament, the argument is, well, these words don't mean what we think they, they mean. So I'll read this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where that word is used. It's also used in 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, our sinokoitai, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so commenting on that, on that word... It is said, again, most scholars agree that this again likely refers to some form of ritual rape or temple prostitution, but it is highly unlikely contextually to assume that arsenokoitine is referring to a committed sexual relationship between two consenting partners of the same sex. And again, there's an argument here, because this word seems to be a word that Paul made up. He made this word up. We don't have record in previous Greek literature of this word being used. It was a word that Paul seemed to have coined himself. 
And he likely had other, other words, other options to use if he was going to be describing homosexuality. So the thought is, this doesn't really mean what we traditionally think of as homosexuality. It's something different. Paul wanted to describe something different, and most likely, he's describing some form of domineering sexual relationship. Speaking of, of boy molesters, that's what he's really talking about. Okay, and so, so there's, there's the argument. Okay, that word doesn't really mean what you think it means. So, is, is, are, are these arguments legitimate? Is there merit there? Well, there, there, there is some strength to these arguments, but I do want to respond to each one of them and tell you what I, I think the Bible is really trying to, to say. First of all, we're looking at that first one about the Bible not actually limiting sexual activity in the ways we have been led to believe, and specifically that the Bible doesn't say anything prohibiting premarital sex. Well, I am going to argue that the Bible does indeed forbid premarital sex. It doesn't always do it in the way that we might expect. It's not always directly, although sometimes it is more directly, um, but it certainly does communicate that and it assumes it everywhere. So let me give you some examples. First, um, I mentioned this earlier in the, in this, uh, as we summarize the law. In the law, if a man had sex with a woman he was not married to, he was required to marry her. Okay, that was just the requirement. If you were going to engage sexually, you must therefore um, complete that act by going into marriage. And you must be married. Secondly, in the law, if it was discovered that a married woman was not a virgin when she entered marriage, she could be punished even with death. There was a pretty severe penalty if it was found out um, that, that, that virginity had been lost prior to marriage. So there, there's not a direct, you shall not have sex before marriage, but clearly it's assuming that. Number three, Old Testament narratives demonstrate that sex before marriage was seen as improper. I think there are several there. There's, there's the, the case of Dinah in Genesis 34, or, or the situation with Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. Again, it is assumed everywhere. But then finally, if we go to the New Testament, I would say that the New Testament explicitly prohibits premarital sex when it prohibits, prohibits sexual immorality. So all over the New Testament, there is this prohibition on, on what's called sexual immorality. That's the translation of the word porneia. And, um, and that, that word, it, it, it seems clear that that word uh, emphasizes premarital sex and includes, it includes that. that. That's the emphasis on the word. After all, sexual immorality is something different than adultery. And we see that in several passages in the New, New Testament. Mark 7, 21, Jesus is saying from within, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and so on. So these are, are two different things. And so when we see the word sexual immorality translated in our Bibles today, we, we can't assume that it is speaking against sex outside of marriage. In older translations, older English translations, often the word, word was translated fornication, which again means sex outside of marriage. So, so although the accusation is the Bible doesn't really say these kinds of things, we've just added to it, I, I don't think that's true in this case. 
The second argument, we are not obligated to obey the Old Testament laws, and the Bible demonstrates a progressively maturing ethic that is moving toward a more inclusive end. Let me respond to that a little bit. Again, we've, we've talked about this in, in past weeks recently, but there is this, this understanding that we have to have between the dif- uh, uh, of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So let's review that a little bit. It is true that we have transitioned from the Old Covenant to the New, and we are not obligated to directly obey the Old Covenant regulations. Again, we've expanded upon that um, earlier this summer. And so it was written for a specific people, a specific time. And that time came to an end, and a new covenant was introduced. And, and that's the covenant that we live under today. However, the new covenant reiterates many of the old covenant commands, revealing a transcendent morality, which we are certainly obligated to follow. And so we've talked about this as well. Um, many of those commands, those key commands in the Old Covenant, they are renewed in the New Covenant. And it just demonstrates that this is, this is something related to God's eternal moral nature. And so they were re-emphasized in the New Testament. And, um, and, and that is true of, of many of the laws that we are, are talking about. The New Testament reiterates the Old Testament commands regarding sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, etc. In fact, the New Testament often even raises the standard in this area. And so we can't just say, well, we're no longer in the Old Covenant. We're under this new agreement and things change from old to new. And so therefore we can assume that things will continue to change and we can stretch these boundaries and that's just the trajectory so we can continue to play that trajectory out. No, we are under a new covenant. There still are stipulations of that covenant that we are to obey. And, and, and in fact, the New Testament does raise the standard. I want to read a few passages that demonstrate this high bar, high standard that we see in the, the New Testament. First, I'll read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Again, pretty strong. These these standards are not relaxed in the New Testament. We could go to 1 Corinthians 6. This is a really key passage that I'd I'd love to tease out more, um, but we don't, don't quite have time this morning. Let me read these few verses. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. We're going to come back to that idea. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's a uniqueness here in this sin. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then, very briefly, we shared this a few weeks ago, but Jesus raises the bar 
here in Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see that, that these commands were renewed and the standard was even raised in some ways. The third argument is that we often misdefine biblical terms resulting in the condemnation of people in actions that were not intended to be condemned. So let's go to that word, that word arsenokoitai. And that's where much of the debate is. Now remember, Paul coined this term. He seems to have made up this word. But that doesn't mean that we can be completely free in our our definition of that word. No, I I think we can understand what he was saying and where he got that word from. Specifically, we can understand that he was going to draw on the Old Testament commands for his language. The most likely place that Paul drew this word from was Leviticus 18 and 20. So from the Septuagint, or the, the Greek Old Testament, these verses in Leviticus 18 and 20 um, which, which are translated, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. There are these Greek words, and you can see them. These Greek words, Greek word for man and Greek word for bed, really. And, and, and God, or Paul, combined these words. This is a compound word. And, and so he's, he's uh, creating this word that basically means man bedding, sleeping with another man. And, and it pretty clearly is referring back to these passages that pretty clearly describe this, this act. So he, he's not just conjuring up this word. He's not just referring to some other situation. No, he's referring to what's being referred to here in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And besides, not only in Leviticus, but also in Romans, we, we see we see the act described without using the actual word. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And so I believe that our, our, our conclusion can be that sexual relations are still limited to marriage between a man and a woman. Now that's kind of uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for many of us to, to, to say or to land on, but I do believe that that is what the Bible Says Now, we can choose to accept or reject the Bible, but I think if, we, if we're honest, we have to say that's what the Bible says. But let's not stop there. Let's go to our next question, and that's the why. If God did indeed restrict sexual expression, why did he do so? Okay, this is the, the, the teleological question, teleology, the study of, of, of really purpose, the purposes behind some design. We've got to answer this question. You know, as a parent, often I will tell my kids something. I'll tell them to do something. Do this or don't do this. And I expect a response there when I, when I say to, to do something. And, and it's appropriate for them to respond. Sometimes it's appropriate for them to respond even if they don't fully understand why I'm telling them that. Okay, I, I just want them to trust me as their father, trust that I, I have an understanding here and that I'm telling them for a good reason. And so I, I, uh, um, I, I could see it as appropriate for them just to respond to what I say. 
However, if I'm a good father, I'm not just going to leave it there. I'm not just going to say, do this because I said so. No, over time, I'm going to explain the rationale behind what I say. And so in this case, we don't just stop at, well, the Bible says this. We also have to go underneath and say, well, why might God say those things? Is there some purpose and intention that he had behind these, these commands? And I would say very much so. So we're going to talk about design. We're going to talk about his, his purposes, his intentions, his, his teleology. And when dealing with design, we're going to set it up this way. When dealing with design, we can assume that in most designs, there are ultimate purposes and subordinate purposes. This is what the philosophers tell us. Okay, when we're talking about design, there are ultimate purposes and there are subordinate purposes. Let's, let's try to understand that by asking this question, what is the purpose of a car? Okay, what is the purpose of a car? Well, I could list a few good purposes of a car. Here are some. Number one, sitting. Okay, that's the purpose of a car. Pretty obvious. You sit in a car. There's a seat there. And so that's, that's a legitimate purpose of a car. Number two, protection from the elements. Okay, there's, there's something protecting me. If I'm going through a hailstorm, I, I want to be in a car. Okay, so there's protection. There's storage. There's a trunk. There's, there's a glove compartment. Um, I put things in my car, and I keep them there. And looking good. Okay, so there's an aesthetic value to a car. Okay, and so we want to look good. And so when I'm driving down the road in my burgundy 2009 Sienna, I'm looking good, and that's, that's the purpose of driving that car. And so these are all purposes of a car. However, these are all subordinate purposes of a car. They're real purposes, but they are subordinate ones. The, the ultimate purpose is transportation. Okay, it's, it's to get from A to B. Now, all those subordinate purposes, they support that ultimate purpose. Um, I, I probably do need a seat. It's hard to drive a car without a seat. And so those other purposes have to be in play there as well. But the ultimate purpose is transportation. Well, when we're talking about sexuality, and, and, and even above that, we're talking about marriage, we might ask, well, what, what is the ultimate purpose of marriage? We're going to ask marriage first and then get to sex. Okay, what is the ultimate purpose of marriage? There may be some, some subordinate purposes, but what's the ultimate purpose of marriage? Um, and I'll, I'll answer this. You know, sometimes in, in Sunday school, they ask a question, the, the answer is always Jesus. We know that. Okay, that's always the correct answer. It's not, not Jesus for, for this one, but there's another pretty much universal answer that you can usually get questions like this right with. And that is to, to glorify God. Okay, you could say, purpose of marriage is to glorify God, to know God, to love Him, to worship and adore Him. That's what it... That's what everything is all about, is glorifying God. So marriage is to glorify God, but let's make it more specific. We could say that marriage is to glorify God by reflecting the relational nature of God along with the relationship he intends to have with us. So God is a relational God. As Christians, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's relationship within himself. That's his fundamental nature. And then he extends that relationship to all of us. So there's this fundamental relational nature that is within God and then spreads to us. Marriage is intended to be a little picture of that. There are lots of little pictures of that, but marriage is a big one. 
He is proclaiming this is what God is like. I would say that's the ultimate purpose of marriage. Now, to describe that further, I think we could describe characteristics of God's relational nature. Okay, if we're trying to reflect God's relational nature through marriage, what are some of those characteristics of his relational nature? I, I thought of, of five, five key ones. And here they are. Unified diversity. Again, God is triune. So he's Father, Son, and Spirit. And in some way, the Father is different than the Son who is different than the Spirit. So there's a diversity there, and yet they are one. God is one. And so there's a, there's a diversity there, but it's unified. That's an aspect of God's relational nature. Secondly, intense affection. Within God's nature and the relationship that he extends to us, there is intense affection. I love reading the book of John because in the book of John, I think we see Jesus' longing for his father. He just enjoys his father, delights in his father. And that's what happens within the Trinity. And then God extends that delight to us and invites us to delight in him. So there's an intense affection. Oops. There's a, a, an exclusive devotion. Okay, okay, God, God is one, and the, the members of the Godhead are devoted to each other, and then they call us into relationship with, with, with God, with himself, and, and we are exclusively devoted to him. Our, our worship is not spread elsewhere. There's an exclusive devotion. There's enduring relationship. It lasts eternally. God has called us into an eternal relationship with him, the eternal relationship that he's always had. And then there's an expanding love. God created us, not because he needed to, but because he, he's an overflowingly loving God. Okay? So these are characteristics of God's relational nature. So then we ask, what is the ultimate purpose of sex? Well, it's, it's basically the same. It's to glorify God by physically consummating marriage. By, by consummating, I mean completing. Sort of achieving, validating, it's stamping. You know, as, as, as Christians, we are not what are called Gnostics. Those who, who separate, very, uh, make, make this, this uh, sharp distinction between the spiritual and the physical. No, God designed the, the physical to be very, very good. And so, the, the physical joins with the spiritual and relational, and they're kind of one. And so, sex is meant to consummate marriage and just come together. It's kind of like, like baptism, spiritually. You know, we, we undergo this, this uh, uh, spiritual relational experience in salvation, and baptism kind of stamps it. Similarly, there's this physical experience that stamps this marriage relationship, it's kind of one with it. And, and therefore, it glorifies God by reflecting the relational nature. Now, with that said, I think we could go into the subordinate purposes of sex. And what I'm going to do is I, I want to show how they correlate to the characteristics of God's relational nature that I just listed. And so let's, let's do that. So the subordinate purposes of sex. Number one, a demonstration of the complementary nature of gender or unified diversity. Okay, that God, God made man and woman to, to fit together. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. 
There, there's a complementary nature here that reflects God's unified diversity. Secondly, there's pleasure. It reflects the intense affection that God has within himself and that he, he expands to include others. There's pleasure. Sometimes church or Christian traditions have discarded this one. No, sex is about procreation alone. But when you read the Bible, there are some verses that made you, make you blush. How strongly it emphasizes the pleasurable nature of sex. Proverbs 5, rejoice in the wife of your, your youth. Let her breasts fill you with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Rejoice, delight, be intoxicated. It's certainly about pleasure. Number three, an expression of commitment. It reflects the exclusive devotion that is, to be, that, that is within God and that we are to have towards God. So there's an exclusive um, com- commitment to, to God. And, 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 when, and, and in sex, it is communicating no, there is there's an exclusivity here. I am I'm focused here. That's what it was intended to communicate in an in, in a way that would reflect God. Number four, a means of binding hearts together or in or enduring relationship. I think sex reflects that that binding, that enduring relationship, and even creates it. You know, we it's been demonstrated that. That in, in sexual experiences, there are hormones that, that are released, oxytocin, uh, vasopressin, um, that, that create this even involuntary commitment biochemically. You engage in sexual activity and you are biochemically binding yourself to whatever you're experiencing. It's just how God has designed it. We were designed to bond, and specifically sexually. We're designed for it. This, in my opinion, is, is part of the reason why pornography can be so dangerous. Because you are biochemically binding yourself to something that's not real. And when you do experience something that, that, that's real, sometimes you, you, you can't even experience it because you have trained yourself, you've bound yourself to something that's fake. Number five, procreation. Okay, so so God, God's love is expanding, it's reproducing, it's creative. And in the same way, sex within this devoted relationship was to be expanding and reproducing. So these are the subordinate purposes. And these are the, this is what we need to have in mind. It's not just God said this in the Bible, although we, we should receive that. God knows better than we do. So we should receive his commands just at face value, but we also want to get underneath and understand, okay, he had intention here. There was purpose here. This is what he wanted to do. And so we have this teleological why question. Well, God did indeed constrain sexual relations to marriage between a man and a woman, and he did it purposefully for his glory and our good. By analogy, a sports car was not designed for off-roading, but for speed. Restricting its use to roads is not arbitrary or legalistic, but instead allows for the driver to experience the greatest satisfaction through the car's intended use. 
Okay, when we understand that God designed things very, very purposefully, we can embrace that design. See, this is good. And it's, it's best when I operate in the design that he has created. All that said, though, that may leave us in a discouraging place, at least for a lot of us. That, that may elicit anger or maybe despair. And so we've got to move on to our last question. How should each of us personally respond to God's laws in this area, especially if we have already broken them? After all, most of us could respond to all of this in one of these two ways. Number one, everything within me longs for something outside of the Bible's sexual boundaries. Just it seems like I've always been naturally inclined to find my fulfillment outside of, of those lines. And for some of us, that's very, very true, very, very real in our lives. Or you might say, I've already broken God's laws in this area in big ways, countless ways. Because after all, we're, we're not just picking on the, the sexual or gender minorities when we talk about this, this subject. And actually, this is for all of us. I read a book a, a few years ago, and it referenced a, a survey that, according to this survey, um, of, of married people in America, 19 out of 20 of them were not virgins before they got married. So 19 out of 20 is according to this survey. So it's not just the sexual minority that is pushed on with, with a lot of what is, is uh, uh, demonstrated in these laws. Now it goes much deeper and, and it covers a lot more of us, even those that um, perhaps are virgins or were virgins at marry, marriage, that doesn't mean that they have not experienced um, experienced uh, uh, challenges in this area. Um, I read a, a, another article recently, and, um, and you, hear, you, you read lots of different numbers, and it's hard to know exactly what's right, but according to this article, um, when it comes to the, the, uh, the experience of, of viewing pornography, in the church, in the church, it said that 70% of men in the church, struggle with viewing pornography. And there's a spectrum of, you know, how, how much or how severe that is, but according to this, more than two-thirds um, struggle in some way with that. But it's not just a male problem either. The same article said that 30% of women in the church do as well. And I think so often women are, are given the impression this is a male thing. And if you struggle with it, then you're, you're, you're strange. But that's not true at all. Close to a third, apparently, um, do, do struggle there. And so, so this, is, this is huge. And this touches all of us. Okay, all of us. We, we hear God's sexual standards and all of us recognize, I failed, or I, I don't fit, or something like that. It's pretty much universal. So, how do we respond knowing that? Well, 
you know, I struggled with this because um, uh, there's, there's so much to say in terms of just pastoral application. And I can't say all of it. And I can't address every situation. And so basically, I just want to share a few truths and start a conversation that I want to encourage everybody to continue. So I'm going to share three quick truths and then give three quick invitations. Here here are those truths. Number one, Jesus' posture toward the sexual sinner is open and receptive. I think one of the most noteworthy things about Jesus' ministry was his constant interaction with sexual sinners. It just stands out because it's, it's so prevalent. He's always having some sort of interaction with somebody who could be categorized as a sexual sinner, even a severe sexual sinner. I would like to read just a, a piece of Luke 7, 36 through 50. You can follow along if you'd like. It's on page 864 in your house Bible. This is a situation where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house, a Pharisee named Simon. And he comes to the house and, and, and there, there's also this woman who is said to be a sinner. And most likely she was a sexual sinner. She was probably a prostitute. And she comes and she starts to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and with some expensive perfume. And so she begins to do this and everybody there, including Simon, says, what is going on here? Does Jesus know who this woman is? And we'll pick it up in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And I I love this story because I think it just gives us an image of Jesus, an image of his posture towards people like this who are people like us. Where, you know, Jesus, he's he's talking to this woman, woman and to Simon, and he's not even looking at Simon, actually. He's just somewhat ignoring Simon. He's looking at the woman. And I can imagine him looking at her with soft, welcoming eyes. And he's kind of dismissing Simon and his attitudes. And he's, he's inviting, he's welcoming this woman. Okay, he's not standing there with arms folded. No, it's, it's arms open. And I think that's the posture that we need to have in our minds when we, when we think of who Jesus is, who God is. Okay? He is open and receptive, and we see it all through his ministry. He is inviting those of us who have stumbled significantly in this area, he's inviting us to come. But there are still demands that he makes. So number two, second truth, Jesus stands ready and eager to receive you into his love, 
but his love will not allow you to remain unchanged. And so he, he invites, he's very receptive. I would say Jesus is very accepting, but not always affirming. Where, where he, he accepts us and all of our sin, but he says, I'm not going to let you stay where you're at. I'm actually going to walk you into a better place. A better place that, that I and my Father have designed for your good. And then number two, and this is, this is the edge, or number three, this is the edgy one. Accessing the forgiveness and transforming power of Jesus requires a willingness to admit that his ways are better than yours. And he says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose your life, you will save it. And I... I think this is, is such, the, such a critical turning point for so many. This is the inflection point. So many people, I believe, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they make a decision to follow Christ or not follow him based on this topic. Maybe there's an entry, there's an interest in following Jesus, but, but when you're brought face-to-face with this decision of whether or not to give up sexual freedom... So many say, I'm keeping my sexual freedom. There are lots of other reasons, but I think that might be the main one for most of us. When, we, when we're confronting that decision of whether or not to follow Jesus, we often ask that. Again, maybe it's not even consciously. We ask, do I have to give up my sexual freedom? But I believe that Jesus is inviting us to do that. And and he's saying, my, my ways are better. Okay, I'm not just being arbitrary and I'm just being overly restrictive and legalistic. No, this is how I've designed things and I invite you here. But you will have to, you will have to say, Jesus, your ways are better than mine. And when you do that, it's not a guarantee of complete healing. There's not a, re- a complete removal of consequences. Maybe, maybe those, those inclinations that you have are not just turned around. Maybe they are, but maybe not. Um, it's not a guarantee of a perfect marriage or anything like that, but I think it is a guarantee of peace and relationship with God. Peace with Him and peace in, in the inner depths of your being. And so I just want to urge all of us to be willing to release, release what we think must be right and to receive God's good purposes for us. With that, I'd like to leave you with three practical invitations. Here they are. Number one, resolve to be transparent with sexual struggles. Um, This is something that we're going to actually focus on a little bit in our small groups this fall. If you're not on a small group, I would, I would just really invite you to, um, to, to check one out. I, I do believe that, that small communities can really help in these kinds of battles. But I would, I would encourage you, if you are on a small group, to, to share any struggles that you have. Maybe that's with your small group leader or wife, um, uh, somebody that you trust, um, I, I, would, I would encourage you simply to get these things out in the open. They are not uncommon, as I just described earlier. So much of our world struggles with this. So much of our, our church struggles with this. But we can't keep them in a dark corner. And so I just want to encourage you 
to have that conversation if it's needed. Number two, I encourage you to join us for our gender class on Saturday, September 30th. So many of you know, know John Meyer, our pastor emeritus. He uh, was a founding pastor here at Summit View. He does, uh, he, he's thought pretty deeply about issues related to Genesis, whether that's creation-related issues, but also gender-related issues. And he developed a class years ago that, that takes us through really a theology of gender. He's going to do that class for us in a day. So kind of the fire hose, Saturday day, he's going to take us through that material. I've just scratched the surface on this material. But, but to go more in depth, which I think we all need to do, we need to understand God's purposes in this area, I'd really encourage you to join us on September 30th to go through John's gender class. And then finally, we are not talking only about uh, sexuality here. We're talking about marriage because that's the context um, in which sexuality was, was to, to be pursued. And um, I would love to invite married couples to join us for our marriage skills retreat on October 27th and 28th. We're teaming with our, our sister church, Beggar's Gate, in Loveland. And um, this, is, this is a powerful time. It's going to be a Friday night and a Saturday day um, to, to work on our marriages, work on communicating well in marriage, um, working on thriving and and uh, pursuing those purposes that I, that I mentioned earlier and, um, and to develop these healthy, thriving marriages. And so we're going to talk more about that later, but I'd, I'd really encourage you if you're married to um, save the date there and join us for our marriage skills retreat. Okay, band, I'd like to invite you to, to, to come on back up. Sorry, we're going long this morning. But as they come up, I'd just like to leave you with a verse that I read earlier. Also, 1 Corinthians 6.11. At the end of this passage, where Paul details a variety of sins, including several sexual sins, he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And God invites us to enter into his presence and be washed, and we can be clean in him.